Here we go, one more time. Today is Monday, July 2nd, 2018, and this is episode 221 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. I hope you got your Q2 uh, metrics submitted on time today. I did, I did. Um, yeah, my uh, all my TPS reports are uh, are in, and uh, it's all good. <laughs> it's, a, it's amazing, the automated messages i get about all the crap i have to do every quarter it 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 is really quite quite stunning but uh but hey i'm glad we got the podcast going we were throttled by apparently one of jerry's children downloading a large large game and sucking up all of our bandwidth yeah yeah majorly they're uh, they're currently sad because they have uh, only five megabits to play with so yeah. we were we were dosed by your spawn <laughs> All right, so I'm um, just a reminder before we go too much further that the thoughts and opinions we express on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So um, I, uh, just uh, item number one is thank you to our Patreon donors. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, item number two is you have something to um, to give away. So, Hey, Jerry, guess what I got? I got something to give away. Really? Tell us about I it. Did. I did. So... Uh, B-Sides Atlanta, which is a great little show in Atlanta, uh, run by this this time by Professor Green, Andy Green, uh, who is a friend of the show and uh, uh, someone we know. All, and all-around good guy. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, none of those things are mutually exclusive from each other. Had some giveaways at the end of B-Sides Atlanta. And somehow, some way, I won... A, a class, a training class, an InfoSec training class from a guy by the name of Chris Sanders. And uh, as much as I appreciate winning the class, uh, and there's a couple different classes that you can choose from. Uh, he's got a whole course library. He's got investigative theory. He's got practical packet analysis. And he's got ELK for security analysts, effective information security writing. Uh, good stuff. Uh Oh, and also Cuckoo's Egg Decompiled, he offers as a free introduction uh, to his classes. So anyway, uh, I won this class, and I figured it would be better to give it away to one of our listeners. Yeah, well, you're so, in management now anyway, so it's like be wasted. Right. I've, I have had the management lobotomy. Uh, so so there's, you know, this is purely just a, just a happenstance that we want to do something good for the listeners uh, and appreciate uh, Chris donating this to the raffle at Atlanta B-Sides, and we appreciate uh, Andy Green for, for running the show and and selecting my ticket to win, and ultimately here we are. So here's the catch. We don't know how to give this away. And uh, such a such a trouble, right? I mean... So yeah. what we want to hear from you guys is good ideas of how we select the winner. So tweet at us, email at us. Our Twitters are at Lurg and at Malicious Link or... Uh, Email us at the show, info at uh, defensivesec.org. Org, thank you. Defensive I almost said .com, that would have been wrong. Yeah, defensive security. Uh, oh, the, thank you. Yep, defensivesecurity.org. Right. So what's the full email again? Because I screwed info that up. Info at mm -hmm. defensivesecurity.org. Yep. Right. 
Um, or 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 tweet our show account, which is at Defensive Sec, with your ideas of how we should give this away. And by next show, we'll have an idea of how to give this away, and then we'll give it away. Absolutely. How's that sound? Absolutely. And by the way, if there's any um, if there's any other good ideas that I like, I've got two DerbyCon tickets to give away too. So oh, it will wow. be, uh, it could could be it could be an interesting, an epic show coming up. Well, sometimes people raffle those away or, or auction them away for charity, yeah, which is something yeah. that, or, or we could give them away. I'm, I'm just throwing out options. I, I, I do like the auction for charity, but yeah. Well, well let's see what the ideas. We, we'll see idea, what ideas we get back, and, and then yeah, we'll go absolutely. from there. So that's what I had. Good. We can, uh, we can get into stories. All right. There's been almost nothing happening in uh, the InfoSec world. Well, you know, it's it's the holiday, it's it's the the holidays, it's the travel season, it's vacation season. True. People, people go places and do things. True, true. So, um, first story tonight comes from eSecurityPlanet.com. I, I can only assume that that domain sounded like a great name back in the early two thousands. Um, but anyway, uh, it's a. It's a pretty good story. Title here is 10 Security Projects CISOs Should Consider uh, from a Gartner analyst. Just warn everybody up front, this is very buzzword heavy. It is buzzword heavy, but I, um, you know, it it struck me as actual pointed recommendations. Mm. So that was kind of what resonated with me. Now, I will say, before we get into that list of 10, they actually have a predecessor list of 10. These these are 10 things that you should already have been doing. And so once you get through that list, then you focus on the new list. So, so just very quickly, the stuff that you should already be doing. Number one, upgrade to the latest endpoint protection platform offering with fileless malware detection, memory injection protection, machine learning, and other features. So malware bytes, got, got it, check. Yep. Malware bytes, that's right. Remove administrator <laughs> rights from Windows users where possible. It's probably not possible anywhere, so check. Uh, <laughs> implement an IAM program with automated provisioning and deprovisioning. Active Directory that's, does that, right? That's identity and uh, account management, by the way. Uh, oh, really? For those, who, for those who didn't know, I'm helping. Okay. Okay. I help. Thank you. Thank you for helping. Uh, perform regular patch management. Um, I mean, you know, yearly is regular, so that's good. Um, implement a standardized server slash cloud workload protection platform agent. No idea what that is. Um, implement robust anti-spam technical controls. Yeah, um, spam assassin. Use some form of SIM slash log monitoring solution, basic detection and response. Use backup and restore for ransomware protection because we have not talked about that one to death and, and how that actually doesn't necessarily help you all that much. Okay. Um, by the way, I mean these are these are actually good recommendations. I'm I'm in a, you I'm just in have a, a case of the you have a case of the Mondays. I have a bad case of the Mondays. Um, <laughs> uh, conduct basic security awareness training, also highly effective, and improve perimeter sec- security, including URL filtering for internet access. So. So those are the things that you should already have in place. So what if I don't? What what do I do? Well, I would assume if you don't, then this next list is not for you. Mm. So if you don't have those, you should 
you, you should, um, you know, first off, reevaluate your life. Mm. And then you should probably go and, um, you know, figure out how to get those things done. Okay. All right. So top projects for two, top security projects for 2018. Number one, privileged account management. Right. So, uh, you know, this is, um, this is. So this goes beyond IAM to more Cor- sophisticated management of my privileged accounts, like my admins and my service accounts. and Correct. And typically, you know, usually involves some, some level of monitoring, right, in addition to management. Then they give a list of, you know, of potential vendors. And, uh, you know, I'm sure. And, and it looks like he's talking multi-factor authentication as well. Right, right. And, you know, and I'm, I'm sure given that this was from a Gartner analyst that these are probably somewhere on, the, on a magic quadrant. Um, vulnerability management project is number two. Uh, and, and this is not necessarily what you think, right? So this is kind of like what we've talked about the past couple of times is, is um, you know, in terms of prioritizing remediation of vulnerabilities, not necessarily identifying vulnerabilities, but, but um, you know, prioritize, prioritization. Uh, Risk-based decision-making on which, on which patches I go after first. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. And then uh, anti-phishing. So, you know, you want to add some uh, SPF to your spam assassin for anti-phishing. Um, you know, so, you know, which by the way is, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm having a mon- I'm, I'm having a case of the Mondays, but I, this is this is good stuff, right? I mean, I'm biased. I'm biased. I think phishing is still one of our number one avenue of attack. I I don't want to put this one at the top of my list, personally. I agree. I agree. And I you know I've had some experience with some of the vendors that they they mentioned, and uh, and and some of them, by the way, are really really good. So, um, you know, it's it's almost <laughs> it's almost at a point where you don't have a good excuse for not doing well with this anymore that the, the providers are really good and, and by the way the the article referencing has usually four five six ten vendors listed under each of these we're just not you know boring you with all of them Co- correct correct and, and again I, I assume that they're listing off vendors that w- were probably somewhere on the um on, on the uh, magic quadrant for this area all right uh application control on server workloads i actually think this is also highly important um you know that we've talked about the importance of this typically in the context of workstations um, on the show before but you know this does really make sense also for servers and i know that this that probably causes a nervous twitch in 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 a lot of people a lot of sysadmin type people but you know it it is uh, i would argue that application control you know, AKA application whitelisting is probably a lot easier to manage on a server estate than on a workstation estate because there's just not as, you know, there isn't as much uh, change in uh, as wide a diversity of applications. So, um, yeah. And they've come, they've come a long way in terms of their manageability and uh, impact. And yeah, I, I, I definitely think it's a good thing to, to look at. Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, and it, it kind of goes back to the point that antivirus is just not that, uh, not that effective. So, uh, micro sub micro segmentation is number five. And you know, th- there's actually this has probably got the largest set of potential vendors to go and and pick. And you know, I've I've looked at 
this, um, you know, professionally um, a, a couple of times, and it's not a well congealed market. I mean, there's there there's all sorts of different approaches to this, and and so, I, you know, I'm not looked into each and every one they have here, but I would say, um, you know, you you have to have a little bit of patience to figure out if you're gonna investigate this you, know, you got to look for, you got to look for something some uh, organization or some company or provider that has something that's going to work in your environment yeah they have nearly 20 different vendors here a lot of them are small vendors right uh this is an interesting market i i think it still has some maturing to do for sure yep uh, detection and response so you know basically like edr um that's that's also Pretty important, you know the, the 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 whole EDR thing reminds me, and and I know this is probably going to sound kind of dumb, right? But the um, the CEO, I think it was a CEO or COO or one of the C something O's of CrowdStrike a while back had a big press release, and he was talking about um, you know kind of metrics to improve on, and I I think we may have covered it on the show, but it, it was you know basically talking about how it's really important for you as an organization to to improve on key metrics like the time to detection to time the time to detect uh you know an infection and the time to remediate and and things like that and this is one of those kind of key capabilities that you need in place to work on those metrics now it's not coincidental that you know crowdstrike is also on the list of, of vendors here but you know i think that i think the point is valid even if it even if it is from a um, a vendor. Yeah, and they break that up into uh, EDR, which is endpoint detection response. I don't even know what EPP stands for. Uh, endpoint protection. I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, and then also uh, user behavior analysis. So Correct. two different areas there. Right. Right. Um, Let's see. And then, uh, yeah, actually, they go they go further down oh, right? yeah. with deception technology. You know, so so basically, uh, honeypots, uh, managed detection and response, of, you know, MSSP. So basically, you know, out, out enabling your MSSP to be more, um, you know, kind of more end to end. And so they lumped this all under you know more detection capability, basically. Yeah, I th- I did find that a little bit odd that they kind of threw everything into that bucket but hmm. hey you know wait i didn't write it so uh number seven cloud security posture management project um so you know basically something like a casb um you know we and by the way we've talked about that to some extent i don't think casbs are necessarily uh cloud casb by the way is the cloud access security broker they're, they're definitely not a panacea or or a silver bullet by any stretch of the imagination and we've talked at length on previous shows about some of the difficulty we have or many organizations have with, you know, kind of the proliferation of, of cloud services in, uh, you know, in, in organizations that are driven outside of the IT department, maybe even inside the IT department. So uh, next is automated security scanning. So this is more of a, um, uh, you know, I, I would say a little more traditional, although, application focused right so they're they're talking more um you know more 
application scanning and integrating that into your, uh, again, assuming that you're a DevOps type shop, but in integrating application scanning into your, uh, your application development flow. So like code analysis and automated code scanning yep. and yeah. Yep. Um, and then, uh, and then there's another CASB, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, you can never have too much CASB you can, you can apparently. You can never have too much. Uh, and then, uh, and then number 10 is a software defined perimeter. Which is an interesting term. Yeah. 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 So, um, I, you know, and I, look, I, I'm not entirely sure if the intention of this is trying to drive down to the, the zero trust, uh, type concept. Um, you know, but it, it, it certainly seems like just based on the, the names that are here that they're more talking about, uh, kind of dynamic provisioning of, of, uh, connections with third party entities, which by the way, is kind of frightening. So. Because you're moving the automation and trust to, to something else. Yeah. As opposed to yeah, yeah. a person and, being in the loop, well, potentially. C correct, correct. And and I, I suppose you can probably architect it however you want it and get comfortable with it. But, you know, I, I get a little, I get the kind of the heebie-jeebies when I think about, um, you know, automatically establishing connections with third parties when we know that third parties are, you know, are, are uh, you know, a big source of network pollution well, you know what's interesting too is these. I don't disagree with these projects, but they're all huge projects. <laughs> and and to say that you should, you know, I, I think any organization of any decent size, and I should say maybe over ten thousand users, would probably struggle to get one of these done in a year, much less ten of them. Yeah, I would. I, I mean, I think that's probably true on almost any scale because if you're if you're smaller than that, you've <clears throat> you're lacking funding. So correct. Um, you know, so, but I don't think the intention was to say, you know, this is the, this is what your portfolio of projects should look like. I think what more what they're saying is, you know, you, here's a, here's a list of things that you should consider for investment in, in yeah, top value. Yeah. The things that show the most value. And I just, I don't disagree at all. I, I, I would probably go down the anti-phishing first, Pam second. And then risk-based vulnerability, risk-based vulnerability management third. If if I had to pick my top three. Yeah, and then at the at the very end, the the, um, the, the person, the Gartner analyst, uh, indicated that by his estimation, there were uh, five of those items that would that would reduce financial impact by successful attacks by eighty percent by twenty twenty over two thousand seventeen. So, so he's basically saying if if you implemented risk-based priority vulnerability, risk prioritized vulnerability management, privileged account management, anti-phishing, application control on work on servers, and automated security testing and development, you would reduce the imp the financial impact of successful attacks by eighty percent. So, that's a pretty bold claim. It, it is, but you know that's that's what analysts do, right? They, <laughs> Uh, you know, the other thing I'd say is that everybody's organization is different and you've got your own, you know, needs. So there, there's not really a one size fits all list, but uh, these are great things to consider and focus on. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> next story comes from a, a, 
an odd uh, source that comes from Canada, or sorry, CanadianUnderwriter.ca, and the title is Data Breach Defendant Must Hand Over Computer Forensics Report. So there is a casino in Canada called Casino Rama. They had a breach back in 2016, I believe it was, and I, I'm not entirely familiar with the Canadian legal system, but as best I can tell, there's a couple of lawyers who are jockeying to be the leader, the lead lawyer in a what effectively, I guess, is a class action lawsuit. And one of the challenges that they have is um, demonstrating to the court how large the class of affected people in the breach are. And apparently the, um, you know, it's, it's not entirely clear to me if the casino has not been forthcoming with the number of people who were breached or whatnot. But anyway, the, um, you know, these lawyers subpoenaed or, or they asked the judge to compel production of forensics reports. In this case, it, they were reports provided uh, by Mandiant. There were two. There was one related to the cause of the breach and the other related to a set of recommendations. And I, now, I guess it's not quite that bad, but um, the, the, I guess the sections of the report that they have to turn over are anything related to the, the scale of the number of uh, pot- potentially impacted people in the breach. You know, all that's very interesting, but the the reason I I wanted to bring this up is in in IT and IT security. You know, we we tend to think about things in kind of you know plain terms. We um, you know we, we we go and we get the job done, but one of the you know one of the things we have to be cognizant of is you know when you when you write something on behalf of your business, right? A, a lot of times that stuff is discoverable. And so, you know, if you are involved in incident response or, or what have you, you know, and, and you are, um, you know, kind of speculating, oh my God, it's, uh, you know, we we completely forgot to patch the server and that's that's how the breach happened. Or, you know, anything you write like that can potentially come back to bite you, you know, whether or not it, it actually was true, you really want to be very careful about, um, you know, about speculation. You know, you have to walk the line um, of getting the job done. And, and you know, um, sometimes a lot, of, a lot of what we do does require speculation and, and chasing down a hypothesis. But, you know, you really, you've got to... Um, You've got to be cognizant that anything you you put pen to paper on or put in an email is is likely going to be discoverable. And you know, from that perspective, uh, phone calls are very good <laughs> in a in an incident because there's you know not not necessarily a record of what was said. Um, not you know not that that uh, look we've talked in the past about ethics, and this is not to say that you should not be uh, you know ethical or or hide anything the point is in the course of investigating incidents or or you know kind of in the normal course of business you can create unfortunate artifacts kind of like what uh, this casino is dealing with right now they can come back and bite you if something um, you know were to go wrong some opposing counsel can take your email out of context and use it 
against you. So anyway, I, I just, this something that I've learned over the years and I, I like to use this podcast to help other people learn too. So as a reminder, Jerry is not a lawyer, nor is he your lawyer. That's Nothing right. on this podcast should be considered legal advice. Correct. If you follow our advice and get sued, we're sorry. <laughs> That's right. I'm trying to help you not get sued, by the way. So. <laughs> I just, and that ends the disclaimer portion of our show. Yeah, yeah right, right. So, uh, you know, by the way, w- while I'm, 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 I'm on this this rant. I want to rant about one more thing that's completely unrelated. Please, 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 please. One more time, please. Please. Get rid of those stupid ass legal disclaimers at the bottom of your emails. Do it now. Go in but, and do it now. Now. But Jerry. No. But no, no. But no, 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 no. Every, everybody does it. So you want to? You know? You want to? You want to? cause your legal counsel or general counsel's hair to stand on and go ask them, you know, how, how well, uh, the, the, the concept of legal privilege will hold up on their documents when you have everything, every email you send in the company is, is classified as, as uh, privileged and confidential. It's not going to work. Tell me next, you can tell me log advantage that say that you're not allowed to use the machine unless you're authorized or useless. Well, no, those are good. And by the way, I also think that we need an RFC for um, for like a like a normalized XML based thing for a risk register, right? So the bad guys can look it up before they attack us. Yes. And if it's in my risk register, they can't. They use it. cannot use it. It's off limits. I, the risk has been accepted. It's off limits. Like I don't even know why I have to come up with this crap, people. This should already exist. Anyway, I think I think it did once, and the government suppressed all knowledge of it. That you're probably right. That's probably the technology the Roswell aliens were giving us that that we've hidden <laughs> all these years. That's probably right. All right. All right. Um, so moving, mo- on. moving on. Uh, next story comes from the Register. Um, title is "No Questions Asked." Windows code search slingers fuel trade and digitally signed malware. Story here is we all like to trust signed code. Even uh, most application whitelisting um, you know, s- vendors actually give you the option to, s- to trust signed code. But the story here is that some, um, some security vendor was tracking uh, you know, distributors, I guess, of au- otherwise authorized distributors of Microsoft Authenticode certification or certificates and found that apparently... There's a there's a pretty active underground market where uh, at least four different organizations who are authorized to resell Microsoft Authenticode certificates will will give you one if you are willing to pay uh, you know to pay a price and and so they've uh, you know they've observed actual signed malware which destroys the entire point absolutely right? You're, the, these. These trust mechanisms are only supposed to be used. Or I should let me try, try that again. These, you know, ability to cryptographically sign code with a trusted vendor cert is is supposed to be only granted to known trusted good code from non malicious sources. So uh, this completely subverts the entire trust mechanism there. And then the question is, why aren't we now immediately revoking trust for these certificate providers? 
Well, I think they, I, I think they are. Um, I think that, you know, the, but the problem is it's, you know, it's an arms race. So, uh, and, and also I think the problem is if, if I'm not mistaken, I don't believe that windows has the concept of a certificate revocation list for, uh, for signed binaries. I could be wrong on that, but I'm, I think that's true. So they actually, the, the researchers here came up with a website called signedmalware.org, and it's a, it is a repository of authenticode certificates that they've observed as having been used to sign uh, malware. Now, you know, the, the, just to you know, give a little more detail, they, they pointed out that in, in years gone by, the, the big threat was attackers or, or adversaries were going after companies trying to steal their valid certificates, but... Um, you know, apparently the <laughs> they're finding it to be much easier just to buy their own. So um, there yeah. you go. Yes. So there you go. One more thing to worry about. That's right. And if you needed one more thing to worry about, and if you were also jealous of the GDPR and, and you happen to live in California, I've got great news for you. Yeah. 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 So there is a uh, there's a there's a new law that was just passed. And the story here comes from bankinfosecurity.com, and the title is California's New Privacy Law. It's almost GDPR in the U.S. Almost. Yes. Yay. Yeah, so it doesn't have nearly as cool of a name as the GDPR. It's the AB375. I mean, it rolls off the tongue, right? Mm. Um, but, yeah, so the AB375 is the new California uh, data privacy law and it gives some similar uh, um, concessions I don't know what the right you know the uh, rights to data subjects that people have in Europe under the GDPR it has you know gives you the right to go to a data controller and request uh, data to be changed to be um, you know, for them to produce uh, what data they have about you why they have it uh, and that sort of thing and uh, and also they it levies some requirements on uh, data protection. I have not yet found if there's an onerous fine attached to this. I did a little bit of digging before the show, but it wasn't able to uh, to find anything. So I don't know if it has the big the big stick like um, the GDPR does. But you know, in general, I I think that um, you know it, it it it'll take some time. But the reality is more and more jurisdictions are going to be adopting what we would have previously called pretty onerous and un unreasonable data protection regulations, at least in the U.S. That's what we would consider that. Um, but that's that's the new normal, right? And, and, and from a personal perspective, we should all be, I think, you know, probably pretty happy about that. From a professional standpoint, maybe we're not so happy, but... Um, but you know, there it is. I do know, for instance, that California, uh, not California, Canada, and Australia have have made comments, uh, you know, in the direction of implementing or adopting laws similar to the GDPR. So, you know, this is a this is getting real. Put your helmet on and uh, start protecting that data. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It, I'm of two minds. From you said a. You know, I can't really add much more of that. From a personal standpoint, it's great. From a professional standpoint, it's going to be a big pain in the arse. Uh, but for California to do it first with all the tech companies based in California is a pretty 
big deal. And, you know, the reality is, is once most companies figure it out for one state, it's not nearly as difficult to replicate whatever those controls are, protections, whatever in other states. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think most companies are going to have to start dealing with this. Yeah. So, so a couple, of, I guess a couple of things. One is this, this law doesn't go into effect until 2020 and the, the, you know, the authors of this are quick to point out that the law is eligible for amendments up until 2020. So, and there are very, very powerful tech lobbies out there. Yes. The, yes, there are not, uh, not getting into politics at all, but there's, there's some very strong, uh, interests that may count, try to counter this. So we'll see what the final end result looks like. Yeah, and s- something that, that you mentioned I, I, I does trouble me a little bit, and that is, you know, each each um, each state here in the U.S. I, I think one of the th- kind of stepping back for a second, one of the things that GDP, GDPR tried to do in Europe was establish a harmonized data protection law across. All of all of the European Union, so you didn't have, uh, you know, dramatically different pri- data privacy laws between one country and a different, and that that enabled, let's say, uh, you know, a bank or a, you know, some company that was handling data in one country, uh, all they would really need to do would would uh, kind of follow their home country's data protection law, and and then kind of by de facto they would. Um, you know they would they would comply with the laws of all the other European countries, and, and that's not going to be the case in the U.S., right? That you know each each state is going to implement almost guaranteed dramatically different and probably oftentimes contradictory data protection laws, and you know that's going to be there's going to be some pain ahead. So yep. let, I'm I don't, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. This is it's going to be a bumpy ride. That's why I'm basing all my servers in Sealandia. Good plan. Good plan. All right. And then the uh, the last story we have for today comes from Errata Security. This was, I thought, a great, great blog post. Uh, I think Rob wrote this, right? Yep. By uh, Mr. Rob Graham. Yeah. So um, who, who doesn't listen to the show, so probably has no idea we're talking about him. But hi, Rob. That's right. That's all right. So the title, title here is uh, Lessons from NPETIA, a.k.a. NotPETIA, a.k.a. a whole bunch of other things, one year later. So um, this past Thursday was the one-year anniversary of NotPETIA. And you know, Ma- Rob goes on to point out that it was uh, very likely the most expensive uh, single attack in history, uh, cyber attack in history so far. I, you know, and he points out that companies like FedEx lost three hundred million, and Maersk and Merck lost s- similar amounts, and you know, lots and lots of other companies lost, um, you know, in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was, you know, we we look, we talked about this to death. You can go back and listen to all the old episodes. But I mean, this was this uh, impacted companies globally, even though it uh, it was apparently. Uh, a targeted attack against the Ukraine. It kind of pointed out some of the the pervasive failures we have, or per- pervasive interdependencies and interconnectivity risk we have in, um, you know, across our our um, industry. Right. So, anyway, um, 
the point of the article here, and uh, just to uh, to pair my, my words to paraphrase what Rob is saying, is that a lot of companies, or a lot of sorry, not a lot of companies, a lot of media reports are taking are kind of hitting the easy button when they talk about not pet yet, and they they point out that you know one year on we're we haven't learned our lesson, we're still terrible at patching, and you know isn't that a shame if we could just you know if we could just swallow hard and and try harder and and do a better job at patching you know things like not pet you wouldn't happen but but he rightly goes on to point out that patching had nothing to do with this the the real underlying problem with not pet you was far more complicated than you can reasonably explain in a in, in kind of a public or or a, you know a, a an article, a mass mass yeah, consumption article. There yeah. you go, exactly. Mass consumption article. You know, it's it, it it's it's much more nuanced and complicated than that, and nobody really seems to have the appetite to talk about that. So, except us and Rob Graham. Except us and Rob Graham, and you know, I've I've kind of been railing on this in my personal blog for a while too. That you know, we look. This stuff is complicated, right? And not pet you, if you really understand what was going on, should be a big wake-up call to how we're designing our networks. And and Rob, by the way, does a great job of stepping through some of that stuff. You know, talking about how this again was not uh, was not related to to patching, to you know, patching or not patching, is the result. Well, to, to be fair, the initial infiltration came from an auto-update patch of a of a piece of accounting software. So patching played a part. But you're talking about not applying, you know, OS patches and Correct. You know, regular patches. Yeah. Correct. I mean, if, if anything, patching caused the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. That particular, was... the, the trust of the auto-patch of a, of a trusted vendor, yeah. Yeah. And so, so he, you know, he actually goes on to point out something that I've, I've, I've thought about, but not really seriously in the past. <clears throat> and, and that is, if you have something that's auto-updating, right? And and more, the, 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 the challenge with his advice is the pervasiveness with which auto-updating stuff is, you know, has gotten. But he's pointing out that, you know, if you've got stuff that's auto-updating, you may want to consider somehow implementing like micro segmentation so that thing has limited ability to propagate out if something like this were to go awry again uh, i'm struggling with that because i think auto updating is a wonderful thing 99 percent of the time correct and you know this is one of the few times that it's gone off the rails but it went off the rails in uh you know in kind of spe- yeah. spectacular fashion yeah, so I, I get what he's saying, right? And it all comes down to assume breach, assume any individual host could be compromised, and how do you contain that compromise from uh, moving too laterally or moving around the organization uh, too easily? And, and that makes sense, right? And also, it stole a bunch of credentials. So how do you do privileged account management? How do you do account management? How do you harden your Windows environment so that your credentials aren't so easily harvested and easily replayed, especially your, your admin uh credentials for your for your environment which is a much much tougher problem to solve than just go patch your stuff yeah correct and and um you know 
considering how you design the trust between different Active Directory domains and ensuring that your, you know, your, your administrators have the minimum amount of permission that they actually need, not that it's convenient, but that they actually need to do their jobs because you know, one of the, it's, it's hypothesized that one of the reasons this was so, uh, so, so pervasive was that uh, the malware jumped onto a, a system that used an automated version of uh, Mimikatz and PSExec to, uh, well, Mimikatz to interrogate the memory of the server to find clear text passwords in the LSAS, uh, in, in the LSAS process, and then just propagate out. And if one of those, uh, one of those accounts it found was a domain admin, it was game over. Yep. You know, you were, you were hosed. And uh, so, so it's, it's hypothesized that some of these really, really pervasively impacted companies probably had, um, you know, had domain type administrators logging into systems and, 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 and there it goes. So, so anyhow, you know, point is, this stuff is is getting much more complicated than can be addressed in kind of like simple platitudes, like yeah. you know just try to patch harder or train your employees or you know this is um th- this is very nuanced and you know, we we've got to we've got to not kid ourselves about that. So that's why we'll spend three minutes out on the show and then move on. Yeah, yeah. Well, but. Anyway, uh, please read the you know, read the article. It's it is um, it's well yeah. worth the read. I I'm not going to do it justice, so you know go ahead and and read it. Think about the implications of it. You know, again, think about the choices you've made in the past and how how this. So read it, then go to your room and think about what you've done. <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. So fair enough. Anyway, um, that is. The, sto- the, the stories in the show for tonight. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, happy uh, happy 4th of July slash Independence Day to our American listeners. And uh, Indeed, yeah. And for our British listeners, we forgive you. <laughs> I hope you forgive us <laughs> for our ungrateful colonist ways. That, that's right. That's right. <laughs> No, it's all good. And uh, be safe, guys, especially around fireworks. I've seen some nasty accidents, so please be safe. Yeah, it's it's really hard to uh, do the, the whole cyber thing with, with without all those fingers. It's true. So anyway, uh, thanks again. We will talk again real soon, hopefully next weekend. Take care. Thanks. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye.